Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. If you grew up like me, you were taught from an early age that if you didn't accept Jesus into your heart, you'd suffer the consequence of burning in hell forever. Quite a compelling reason to pray that prayer over and over and over again. But is that the only way the Christian tradition has understood hell? And is it unchristian to believe that at the end of time, all will be saved? And I think the, the Universalist house, although it looks so good from a curb, is not actually, theologically speaking, a livable residence. Join me and Keith Giles, author of Jesus Undefeated, condemning the false doctrine of eternal torment as we respond to Dr. Mike McClemon, author of The Devil's Redemption, that argues universal salvation is unbiblical, unchristian, and should be ultimately disregarded. Hello, friends. I like making trailers. I I probably have too much fun making those trailers. It's good to be with you. Welcome into another live video response. Hope you're doing well. If you're new, welcome. I am Tim, the creator of the New Evangelicals. We're a nonprofit organization holding space for folks marginalized by the evangelical church, holding evangelicalism accountable, and helping people like you think about better ways forward in your faith beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. It is great to be here with you. Where are you watching from? I would love to know. Put it in the comments. I can throw comments up on the screen. This will be a very, I think, fun and fascinating conversation because this is a different type of live response video than our normal ones. Usually I bring on a scholar and we kind of just directly say why we think this particular perspective that we're critiquing is maybe wrong or not helpful. This one is a little bit different for a few reasons. One, our goal is not to say that the views that our video person has are necessarily wrong. We're simply here to say that that there are wider ways of viewing the topic of hell in the Christian tradition. So my guest on this one is Keith Giles. He wrote an amazing book right here. Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment, and we're going to be responding to the claim that universal reconciliation is not a biblical term used loosely, of course, or a Christian perspective. So with that being said, Keith, welcome in to the live. How are you? I am doing great, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Uh, really quick, we have someone from Norway watching. Okay, hello. That's <laughs> hey You're there. officially international, Keith. Congratulations. There you go. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, friends, here's what we're doing today. And I, I, I need to first apologize to Sean McDowell. This poor guy, I, I respond to so many of his videos. And I swear, Sean, if you're watching, it's not personal. He just happens to do content and conversations around things that I'm like, oh, I want to respond to this. So we are responding to a Sean McDowell um, interview with Michael McClimond or McClymond. I'm sorry, Mike, if I'm mispronouncing you. He has his doctorate in theology at the University of Chicago. He holds a master's in divinity, University of Chicago. He has an MDiv from Yale and a bachelor's degree in chemistry. So clearly this guy is educated and he went on Sean's YouTube video to talk about why he has a problem with universal reconciliation. He, he wrote a two-volume 
book uh, called The Devil's Redemption, Why Universal Reconciliation is, is Not the Right Way. So before we hop into the video, Keith, tell us about yourself briefly. Give us your background and, uh, and, and, and why you disagree with the premise. Yeah, thank you again. Um, so yeah, my name is Keith Giles. I am an author. I'm a licensed and ordained, um, formerly <laughs> Southern Baptist pastor, uh, but I was for like 35 something years ago. I served on staff at different churches, helped to plant some churches, a vineyard church in Southern California with my wife. And then we also left and started a house church community that gave away everything to the poor in the community, did that for about 11 years. And so uh, I come at this topic as an author, really. So, you know, I've written a seven part book series called the Jesus Un series. Each one of those books tackles what I call a pillar of evangelicalism or deconstruction. And so one of the books that I, that I wrote is the one we're talking about, or we're going to be speaking from today, Jesus uh, Undefeated, and it's looking at the doctrine of hell. And so I've, I've studied this as a, um, not as a scholar, but as someone really like a lot of our listeners, someone who is interested in the topic and has taken the time, has gone into the resources. I've read the theologians, I've read the scholars, I've read the church history, and tried my best in the book to present all three views uh, of the doctrine of hell. And there are three views, and they're all three biblical views, and they're all three Christian views, and have been from the really as the earliest days of Christianity. We can find Christians who held one of these three views. So um, I'm coming at it more from the side of education. I think what I something that I really that really bothers me as I look back on my my days as an evangelical Christian and pastor and Bible teacher was that uh, so much of what I was taught was really I didn't really receive an education I received an indoctrination I was told this is the only way to think about inerrancy this is the only way to think about the second coming this is the only way to think about this this doctrine of hell and then in my own studies and research uh, what I found was that no actually there are many different Christian ways that Christians have historically looked at all of these different topics, and like the atonement is another one. And so what I'm trying to do in my books and what I hope we can do here is just let people know that there have been historically many different Christian ways, biblical ways of looking at these different uh, doctrines and throwing away, throwing around this label of, you know, this person's a heretic because they disagree with me uh, isn't really helpful and it's not really accurate. I think that's great. I, I want to reiterate the point. The whole goal of the work that we do is to simply walk people through different rooms in the Christian tradition and say, look, this is here. I'm not telling you that you have to sit here. I'm not telling you that it's the only way to view these topics, but it is a way of being Christian. And I yeah. think for a lot of us, hell is such a key topic and issue because many of us were sat in front of maybe a fireplace or in front of wherever, and we're told, hey, listen, um, if you don't pray this prayer, if you don't become a Christian, and accept Jesus yeah. into your heart, you're going to end up in a place like that when you die. And we were taught mm -hmm. that was just some objective reality that apparently everyone knows about. And you're either choosing to be a Christian so you don't go to the bad place and burn alive forever, or you're just on, on the way there. And I think for a, a lot of people, when they start renegotiating their faith or start deconstructing, and they realize for the first time that, oh my gosh, there's eternal conscious torment, there's annihilationism, and universal reconciliation that are all part of the Christian tradition, even if the flavor I was given really highlighted one over the other. It's very disorienting because for a lot of people, our faith was tied to the afterlife. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so it can be tough to renegotiate. I just think it's important for people like yourself and others to help us realize there are other ways of viewing these issues. And the way we're going to do it is by, is by responding some, to some of the claims that Mike makes in the video with Sean. Friends, as always, our goal is never to dehumanize people. Every person is made in the image of God. We're not here to make fun of or belittle people, but we are here to critique ideas and respond to them. So that's the whole goal of this video. So Keith, if you're ready, I'm ready to hop into clip number one. Are you, are you, are you ready, ready to roll? Um, I think so. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go on and do it. Let's jump in. All right. Here we go. Clip one. I want to make clear to the those who are listening or watching that my engagement is with universalism. There is a position of Christian in mm -hmm. that's not really the primary focus of this book. I think there is a lot of scope for discussion and disagreement among Christians about the you know those who have never heard the gospel and exactly how you know God will judge them. Universalism, though, is a much more radical position because it says that no one you know, no one, there, without any exceptions, no one will be lost. Everyone will be saved. So it's like saying, if I make the statement, there are no white crows, you know, it's, it's hard to prove a universal statement like that. Well, there could be, I could go looking for a white crow all through the world and maybe there's one hiding on the other side of the tree. I just didn't notice it. Right. So how do you say that there, you know, that um, everyone without exception, and also if the human will is involved, it's like, uh, it reminds me of the report on the North North Korean election, Kim Jong-un reported there was 100% turnout, it was 100% for himself. Of and everyone course. laughs, anything depends on human will, like all humans are never going to perfectly line up. So is it is it really credible, I mean, to try to claim that? But that's what universalists say. All right, Keith. So claim number one, universalism is radical. And I, I was trying to follow his example of the crow and the voting thing. Do, do, yeah. do you have any insight to that? Because I was having a hard time seeing the connection. Well, I think what he's trying to say is that when for a universalist, Christian universalist to say that all will be saved without exception, that 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 that, that in itself is sort of problematic, that as long as one person isn't saved and see that proves the whole thing false. Right. And so mm, I think I it gets to the idea of free will and things like that. I, I just wanted to say though, like, again, he, he starts off right off the bat trying to make a claim that universalism, Christian universalism is a radical view. And again, it's, I think it's only radical if you hold the views that he does, right. That he and Sean hold. Um, if you are someone and I was, and I'm, you were probably too, I was mm -hmm. raised my whole life. Well, this was, "Quote unquote biblical Christianity. This was. This is it. This is the main, most important doctrine. And it, so, if you believe that, then of course someone comes along and suggests something like Christian universalism. Oh no, this is this is dangerous. This is heresy. This is radical. But it's not radical in the sense like again, if you go back and look at, at church history, you see that we have always had Christians, church fathers, and we're going to get into this as we go forward. Lots of them, lots of church fathers who embrace this idea." of universal reconciliation. So again, these three views, these are all three biblical views. They, in other words, they're based on scriptures, all three, no matter which of those three views you hold, you don't hold them because of your emotions or your feelings. You hold them because you can say, I can turn to these scripture verses, you know, five or 10 verses and say right here, I believe it because the Bible says. And we need to understand that too. I think this is something really important as we're going forward to understand part of why this is so difficult is that again, all all of us are basing our views on the Bible, but the assumption some of us have is that the Bible is univocal, yeah. that the Bible is all an opinion on everything. And the truth is that that is, that is not the case. Um, ask any Jewish uh, person of faith that, uh, you know, about their own scriptures, 
And they celebrate the fact that the Hebrew scriptures are a dialogue, a conversation, and they are constantly going back and forth, right? The whole joke is you get three rabbis in a room, you have four opinions. They celebrate, you know, the what if or what about, you know, and so that's valuable to them. They they wouldn't say their scriptures. And again, what we call the Old Testament is it's a Jewish text. It's their scriptures. It's not a a Christian scripture. They would say about their own text that it is not univocal. And so Christians have tried to make it that way. And when you do that, then you create these kinds of things. Well, the Bible supports my view, therefore I'm right and you're wrong. Right. Um, the Bible supports three different views. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to say, um, and again, I, I talk about this in my book, like, yeah, I, I have a preference. You know, I, I do land on the uh, side of universal reconciliation. But again, uh, like you were saying at the beginning, I, w- I would be more comfortable if someone like McClyman would say that I believe this view these other views are, are also Christian and also biblical, but these are the reasons I disagree with them. But he has, he says there, you know, how can Christians, how can, you know, Christian universalists make these kind of statements that everyone will be saved? Well, I would say just briefly I, you know, that John, Jesus says this, right? Jesus says that uh, in John twelve thirty two that if I be lifted up, I will drag. Literally in the Greek, it's drag. I think mm-hmm. our English translation mostly say, I will draw all men to myself. But Jesus says, I will drag everyone to myself, meaning eventually mm-hmm. everyone will be drawn to Christ. And then this also year, Paul right? said, talking about- there you go. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then Paul, and we're going to get a lot into Paul because um, Paul is very universalist. Uh, I will say two things about that before we get into it. Number one, when I say that Paul is very universalist, what I mean is we don't have any sermons by Paul or any, any of the apostles preaching the kinds of like shotgun wedding type the gospel, <laughs> right? Um, if you don't want to burn in hell forever, raise your hand, pray this prayer, and okay, you get to go to heaven. Paul yeah. doesn't preach the gospel that way. Peter doesn't preach the gospel that way. None of the apostles preach the gospel that way in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, or any of the epistles. So Paul is is a, a universalist in that, A, he's not teaching eternal conscious torment, and he's a universalist in that really so many of the verses, that the scriptures that we look at, to say yes, this is this is Christian universalism is a, is a biblical and Christian doctrine. Are quotes from Paul, and if Paul didn't mean these things, he probably shouldn't have phrased them the way he did. So one of those is in like First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, Paul says, "As in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive." Again, all of us died in Adam, and this is something that uh, McClyman would would say would say when he was preaching the gospel. Right, every human being, all of us are under sin, right? Because of the original sin, because of Adam. Yeah. And so Paul is saying, in the same way that all of us are under the sin of Adam, all of us are made alive in Christ. And he says this at least three times. Paul uses the, that same kind of analogy, comparing Adam to Christ and saying, if this happened in Adam, it happens even better and in, in, in a bigger way in Christ. Uh, and he does that three times. So uh, we'll get, we have a lot more to get to uh, as we go forward, but I mean, uh, that's just to start off. Again, these are, this is a biblical view. It's not an opinion and it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to your point, you can find it in the Bible, right? So we can at least start there. Absolutely. There's at least hints of this idea in scripture. All right, let's keep it yeah. going then. Here we go. Orthodoxy now is a different, somewhat different case because this massive figure from the early church origin had a great influence on Eastern Christianity through the centuries. But the attitude toward origin was always double-sided that because he was just too important just to completely throw out. He was mm-hmm. a major interpreter of scripture. He developed the theory of the contemplative life, and he was the first to give the spiritual reading 
the Christian context of the Song of Songs as a, a story of the love of the of the soul for Christ and so on. Mm. But Jerome in the early church said that for him, origin was like a field strewn with weeds and flowers. Okay. Flowers and leave the weeds behind. That's how I would interpret origin as well. I don't think mm. that there's nothing valuable in origin. The area that got origin in trouble that led to his name being inserted on the 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 fifth ecumenical council by 53, he was named as a false teacher because of his view of, of universal salvation and suggestion more than a hint that even Satan is going to be finally redeemed. Well, he's Satan would become Lucifer again. He would stop being evil. Stop he would go back to his original. Yeah. Let me, I just want to respond to that. Um, Cause I think the so, rest of what he says is along those same lines. To be clear for the audience, right? The, the claim is that Origen, who is an early church father, universal reconciliation kind of person, became a heretic during the Fifth Ecumenical Council because of this view, is his claim so far. Yes. Um, and that's actually, in itself, is something to think about, right? Why did it take until the 500s for Origen to be labeled a heretic? You know what? That's about the time that eternal conscious torment became the dominant view of the church. Mm. So I know there's before that, for 500 plus years, Origen and people who believed like him were not considered heretics because up until that point, for like 500 years, it was okay to be a Christian and hold one of those three beliefs. So I want to I want to talk about the fact because he he seems at least in this I haven't read the book but at least in this conversation he he seems to center so much of it on Origin as if Origin is the holdout he's the one guy mm. he's the only you know church father that was this universalist guy and I think I have a slide on this there were other church fathers who were also universalists and and so these are people like Clement of Alexandria Theophilus of Antioch Gregory of Nazianzus Basil the Great Gregory of Nyssa Athanasius. Go. Yeah. And sorry, I'm sorry, it's hard to see all of them. Yeah. So, you know, here's the thing, like, especially people like the Gregories, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, these guys sat on the Council of Nicaea. Okay. Mm. These were the, some of the guys that helped formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Are they heretics? Well, according to McClyman, they're heretics because they, they agree with Origen that all will be saved. And so, again, I, I think it's disingenuous to suggest that it's all about Origen. Origen was the guy who was he was confused. He was corrupted. You know, he was right on a few things, you know, but on this one thing, he was he was kind of screwy. And that's why, you know, he's a heretic. Again, lots of early church fathers. That's just a handful of them believe this. Right. Um, and I think there's also it's also important to point out that the Nicene Creed itself, you know, again, we, we say, you know, a lot of people say they're creedal Christians, right? Let's go back to their literature photos. Let's look at right. the creeds, right? Well, that's that's actually a good thing to do because if you go and look at the earliest creeds, guess what? There's no mention of eternal conscious torment, right? And and again, why is that? Well, because again, it's it's testifying to the fact that this wasn't a make or break idea for early Christians for 500 years. They, in other words, they allowed this to be something that people could uh, disagree on and still be called a brother or sister in Christ. Mm. Um, and again, that didn't change. That that stayed the same until, uh, again, like after Augustine, when hell became like, no, you got to believe eternal conscious torment or you're out. Yeah. Do you want me to keep going with this clip? All right. Keith has spoken. Let's go clip number three. Actually, <laughs> before we do, Keith, I have a question oh, yeah. for you, actually. It might be good sure. for the audience, too. Maybe just an observation, but this heresy thing, you know, I think that for some reason, in a lot of our heads, we think that if people in the past called something heresy, it's automatically impossible to not 
to, to hold that view and be a Christian. But as I'm just, and I'm, I, I want to be careful because there definitely are views I think are problematic for various reasons, but I think we're almost too quick just to be like, well, this one person at some point labeled this person a heretic without getting into the context of like, well, how what, what led up to that being called a heresy? What were the cultural factors at play? And this example of origin, I think is a good point where you just brought up that for almost 500 years, it wasn't heretical. And then at some point it became heretical. But again, who is that? Well, it's people who form councils, who try and draw boundaries around what is right belief and what isn't. So that's very different than something being like an, an objective truth outside of, of, of us, right? These are other men mm-hmm. coming together to make these rules about how the faith gets expressed going forward. So there is a, a bit of elasticity there with, 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 when it comes to things like even heresy, because it's just complicated. It, it's not a, a hard and fast rule for all people of all time, because these things come out of cultural context. That's right. And the pro- this is, I think, the problem with this whole thing about heresy is it's, it's extremely subjective. I mean, whether it's being done on the level of like on the internet, someone saying, oh, I disagree with you on this topic, you're a heretic. So that happens all the time. Right? All, the time. Me, all the time. All the time, Keith. <laughs> I get it all the time. But then there's also, like you said, you, know, you can go back and formalize it and say, well, you know, when these bishops got together and they had a council and they all got together and they voted and had a discussion and debate and they all decided this is this is orthodoxy, this is Christianity, and anyone that disagrees with this is wrong. I mean, that has a little bit more of a feel to it of authority. Totally. But um, again, it's still kind of arbitrary. It's what those Christians, the majority of Christians in power in the church at that time all agreed, we're right and they're wrong. And you see this kind of back and forth all through church history, right? I, I kind of hold loosely to that kind of thing about heresy, right? I do think, yes, of course, there's some basic things about Christianity that we should all hold on to if we're going to call ourselves Christians. But this isn't one of them, at least at least if the first 500 years of church history is any indication. And if universal reconciliation is, again, was the dominant view. I, I want to say that yeah, for the first 500 years, I would say it was the dominant view. And I say that because like, we know that there were six known theological schools during that time. And out of those six, four of them taught universal reconciliation. One of them taught eternal conscious torment. By the way, it was located in Rome. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder how that one all of a sudden became in the fight, you know, after Augustine, uh, the dominant view, right? Because Rome yeah. suddenly became a seat of power for the, for the Christian church. And one of them taught conditional immortality or uh, annihilationism. That was in Ephesus. And so again, we know this historically. We know, again, think about that. And this, this is one of those, one of those things where, gosh, I wish someone had told me this. You know what I mean? Totally. Growing up. Totally. I just wish if someone said, look, you know, hey, look, our, as Southern Baptists, we really think that eternal conscious torment is the correct view. But just so you know, this is the truth, right? 500 years of the early church history from the, we're talking about from Jesus and Paul all the way through, right? To Augustine, yeah. that this was the case. Four of the theological schools embraced universal reconciliation. Only one taught eternal conscious torment. And only one taught conditional immortality. And so eternal conscious torment was in the minority for the longest time. Even when Augustine makes his famous statement about, you know, he makes this case saying, here's why I think eternal conscious torment is true. He starts it off by saying, even now, very many disagree with me. So he's acknowledging he's in the minority at that point, right? I am, I am a, I'm one of the few people that holds this view. 
he's acknowledging that most people hold the view of universal reconciliation. And But what's great, though, about him saying that is he also is very gracious, because when he says that, he also says that they hold a differing view to him without doing violence to the scriptures. And I'm like, man, that's so great. I wish, again, people like McClyman and other people, if they're going to write these kinds of books, would be as gracious as Augustine was and say, I don't agree, but those that disagree with me do so without doing violence to the scriptures. Well said. All right, let's keep going. Here we go. Clip three. Let's talk about you make this connection between conditionalism and if we allow conditionalism or embrace conditionalism, it seems to logically lead towards embracing universalism. So maybe define what you mean by conditionalism and show why those are connected. Sure. Okay, conditionalism is the, the, the newer term for what up to fairly recently was sometimes called annihilationism. And now annihilation is just not a very positive word. It doesn't have a good vibe. Who who's, wants to, I'm an annihilationist. Good point. You were staring in front of me like the Wicked Witch of the West who has the water thrown on her. Um, and so conditionalism or annihilationism is this notion that that there will be a final judgment from God. Mm-hmm. God will separate one 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 group from the other, the sheep from the goats. And then um, either immediately or at some point, the goat simply ceased to exist. God wills them out of existence. Or one common spin on this is that the, the fire of hell is a consuming fire and that those who go into the fire of hell are actually destroyed and they cease to have any existence at all, like burned to ashes, so to speak. And so in the end, you do end up with a situation where only um, only heaven is populated, but there is literally no one to be in hell because they've all ceased to exist. Um, this is a view that has always had more appeal for whatever reason in Britain than in the U.S. And in fact, mm-hmm. evangelical alliance was being put together in the middle of the 19th century. This was an issue even then because there were some British scholars who were in toward conditionalism. They believed the Bible, but they, they wanted to hold this conditionalist view. And the Americans kind of put their foot down and say, no, you have to believe in, in a you know, conscious separation from God, eternal separation, conscious, continued existence. And so that, but then John Stott, who yeah. is a well evangelical British scholar, very highly reputed and you know, a personal chaplain to Queen Elizabeth, um, he began to shift toward conditionalism. And actually in the, the Evangelical Alliance, the British manifestation of that, he shifted some of the language just subtly to allow the, the conditionalists to still be, call themselves and be a part of the evangelical uh, alliance there. But so what I noted in my book is that the arguments used for conditionalism are pretty similar to the arguments used for universalism. One of them that Stott himself used is he said that he could not picture a final outcome where there were some like holdout, you know, of, mm-hmm. of rebels against God, like in their underground you know, caverns or, you know, refusing to yield obedience. And he said, wouldn't that be a defeat for God if that were the case? And so for him, again, this is, this is the problem here, Sean, this is a priori reasoning. I'm starting with my own initial and I'm reasoning downward from those to what seems reasonable. And therefore, you know, if you decide your eschatology, I I like to say that if you start your sentence with, you know, yeah, jump in whenever you want. Yeah. I think I've heard enough of of this one. Yeah. So here's the thing, like, uh, I love, I love that he calls it the slippery slope of conditionalism. I guess that's because the slippery slope is that if you, if you move into conditionalism or annihilationism, look out because you might become a universalist (laughs) and maybe that's true. 
that I, you know, I know a lot of people that are uh, apologists and, and scholars who hold to annihilationism and they haven't, you know, they haven't slipped into the uh, universalist pond yet. So I don't think that that's inevitable. And here's what's so funny too. At the beginning, you notice he's talking about like, oh, nobody wants to be called an annihilationist. That just sounds horrible. The wicked witch of the West and oh, you're going to be annihilated. Ha ha. Oh yeah. You know what's so much better to be eternally consciously tormented. That's an improvement. Yeah. That's a much better thing. Um, I don't know how he thinks that one is better than the other. I think they're both pretty scary. But again, I think what he's what he's missing again. And I don't, don't want to jump in. Is that he's right there at the end? He was saying that you know, oh, John Stott is basing his conditionalism, his his annihilationism, on this a priori argument, or like my I feel that this way, I, I think this way. And again, that's misrepresenting John Stott. That's misrepresenting my friends who are annihilationists. Because trust me, they will tell you, no, I don't believe it because I have a bad feeling about this. Or, oh, philosophically, I think this doesn't make sense. Although they might also say that, but th- their primary arguments would be, no, let's look at these verses, right? They would say, I got like five, ten verses right here in the scriptures. Let's go and look at those verses. And they would say, this is why I believe in annihilationism. And they are there. I will say it. I mean, if you wanted to make a case. You could make a case for annihilationism using the scriptures, using the Bible. Well, uh, Preston Sprinkle changed his mind going from ECT to annihilationism after he wrote the book with Francis Chan. And I know this because I interviewed him about it. And yes. he was like, yeah, I'm just convinced that, you know, biblically speaking, that that's it's more likely of, of what the Bible is getting at. Ultimately, I do want to point out, though, briefly, I'll get back to you, Keith, in a second. What you're saying is so good. I don't understand the evangelical obsession with with bragging about believing horrible things, you know, like, well, because my belief is that God is torturing people, that's how you know it must be more true than your belief that maybe God saves everyone at the end, as if the worst news it is, the more true it must be because it's just that much Mm -hmm. more unpalatable to someone. When in reality, you know, as a former conservative evangelical like yourself, Keith, right, who gave everything and was fully and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but was fully indoctrinated in those systems, you're taught that God is full of grace and mercy and love and that he loves everyone and he sent the He sent Jesus into the world to die for, for all sinners, et cetera. So it's not like crazy to question, well, why would this good, loving, merciful God, who's all-powerful, also be sending people to roast forever unless they like prayed this prayer. That, that That's not an inconceivable thought as a human being to be taught about this version of God and then question why this loving God would also burn your brother alive who isn't a Christian for, for all of eternity, right? And so the response right. of, well, the universal reconciliationist or even the annihilationist, you know, they just are uh, are, are capitulating to their feelings because it, 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 the doctrine of hell is uncomfortable. It's like, even if that was the case, like, why is that a bad thing? I mean, human emotions can be very good to help us discern what is a healthy concept and what isn't a healthy concept. So that, that one always, always right. boggles my mind. Like, I wouldn't be bragging about that if I was in your shoes. Yes. Yes. And I want to say, too, um, along those lines, too, and I, I apologize because I probably should have defined this way at the beginning. So we talked about the fact that there are three views, but I think something that's really important to point out, because uh, and McClyman alluded to it in his in his response just now, like one of the, I, I guess I should say, universal reconciliation, patristic, historic Christian universalists, right? These church fathers were talking about throughout church history for 500 years. The view that they held Universal reconciliation doesn't teach, it's not a get out of, lot of get out of hell free card. Um, in fact, you know, this is one of the shocking things about it when you explain it to people is 
those that embraced universal reconciliation believed everyone passed through the fire. Everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous. Those that loved and served Christ and believed in Christ and those that rejected Christ. All of us went through the fire. All of us will go through the fire. And so that's, let's stop and think about that, right? It's not, oh, you know, everybody gets, just goes straight into heaven. No, it's not. So all three views, no matter which view you hold. That's right. Eternal conscious torment, annihilation, or universal reconciliation all teach that you will pass through the fire. Universal reconciliation goes even farther and says everyone will pass through the fire. Now, but the, here's the real difference. The difference is in the nature and the purpose of that fire. That really, I think, is it. That's That really is the bottom line. Yeah. Eternal conscious torment teaches that this fire, the purpose of that fire, the nature of that fire is to torture you for eternity. Annihilationists would say that the, the purpose of that fire is to, to destroy you, to burn you up so that you cease to exist. Universal reconciliation teaches, again, based on the scripture from the apostle Paul, um, that, that everyone passes through the fire. Paul says this, everyone will pass through the fire. And if any, if there's any good works that they've done, that it will be revealed in the fire, right? As gold and silver and precious stones. As Christians, we've heard this verse before. And then he says this shocking thing right after that. He says, and if you, and if those pass through the fire and everything is burned up, meaning there is nothing good in this person, there is nothing of Christ in this person, they are completely consumed in the fire. It says, and yet they will be saved even as those who pass through the fire. And so universal reconciliation says that, again, everyone passes through the fire, but the nature and the purpose of the fire is restoration. It's it's a cleansing fire, right? It's a refiner's fire. There's an Old Testament scripture that says actually that God's that the fire of God is a as a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Soap never destroyed anybody. Soap never tortured anybody. And so again, I just wanted to clarify that. Like, what are the three views? What is the real the real definition of universal reconciliation? Just so it's not misrepresented. That is very helpful because you're right. I think a, a big stigma of people who might believe universal reconciliation. And to put my cards out on the table, I'm not fully convinced of the position. Keith knows this. I've had him on the podcast, right, Keith? Yes. You and I have, have talked yes. about this, but. They, hell is still a factor in all three of these views, or at least the flames or, or the idea of fire as some kind of metaphor for some process. So I agree, just because we're talking about all are saved at the, at the end of time or when, when Christ redeems the cosmos does not mean that like the fire metaphors in the Bible just don't exist or that they magically cease to be. They're there for a reason. Right. Um, okay, do you want right. to keep going with, with, with this clip or, or do you want to move on to, on to, to the, the next one? Let's go to the next clip, yeah. Let's go right. to the next clip. Oh, really quick. Uh, Tabby pointed out, great point here. A friend pointed out, how could you enjoy a party on the roof if you know people are being tortured in the basement? Exactly. Exactly right. Right. It it is reasonable to assume that if we are fully conscious and sentient in this new world that that God creates and redeems with with his creation or their creation, and part of that creation is is being tormented forever— we're obviously going to be aware of that. How is that heaven for anyone to know that other folks are being tormented for all of eternity? It's a very reasonable thought. Right. All right, here we go. Next clip. Now, the point that you made between conditionalism and between universalism is kind of a theological a priori about God and his justice and the way he operates in the world. Of course, there's right. biblical arguments that people will make. Are you finding mm-hmm. that a lot of the universalists now, the younger ones, are making these kind of a priori 
theological commitments about God being loving, about God caring for the world, about his character, biblical arguments, or are they making both? Well, the, I mean, the arguments are framed, you know, as biblical arguments, but there's just so much in scripture that you have to reinterpret in, in some way. And mm-hmm. it doesn't begin with the discussion of heaven and hell in the New Testament. It begins with the two ways motif, you know. This is in the second chapter of the Bible. In the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. You know, it's like consequences follow from choices that are made. Psalm 1 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Quick note about about what he just said. The day you eat of it, you will surely die, not burn alive forever in hell. Just just poor little thing to note out. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. See, what he what he's doing, what he's doing is actually making a great case for annihilationism. Right, he's quoting right. scriptures where where God is saying, "Yes, this two ways motif, and if you if you're disobedient, what will happen? You will die. You'll right. perish. Yeah, right. Um, there's other scriptures too, like you'll die by the sword if you're if you're if you disobey God, but you will flourish and live in the land, right? But but again, I universalists would say those verses. Um, are talking about literal death, right? It's not talking about something ha- after you die. Yeah. But anyway, that's, yeah, that's just a thing. quick little note there. It doesn't mention how it says the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. There's some idea of distinction, separation. Isaiah that's chapter right. one says, if you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. <laughs> if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Again, that's that you say, well, maybe that's talking about a this worldly destiny. Yes, yeah. but through scripture, There's a very clear idea of these different outcomes for the righteous and the wicked, depending on how they respond to whatever revelation God has presented. And the universalists want to set that aside. And then there are some texts that are just so clear in the New Testament, like in Luke 13, where someone asked Jesus, are there many who will be saved? And Jesus, first thing he says is strive to enter by the, the narrow gate. So basically pay attention to yourself. Don't get caught up in the speculation about other people. Pay attention to yourself. But then he said, for truly, I say to you, many will strive to enter and will not be able. And if you're a universalist, you have to take a text like that and say, oh, well, it's just a temporary, you know, you have to add something that's not in the text. Say, well, or how about the the parable of the wise and foolish virgins are knocking on the door, the door of the the, the wedding feast is shut, you know, um, and they can't get in. You have to say, well, that, that only lasts for a period of time. And then there's another opportunity beyond that. Well, but scripture doesn't say that. And so. This okay, this is all important. Yeah, that's great. What 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 passages he's talking about? He said Luke 2. Is that what he said? Um, yeah, I think he's referencing uh let's see. He said Luke 2 was one of them. Yeah. But just like that last thing that he said there, like you know, universe universalists want to argue that once the door closes, it's never it's it's gonna open again. And then yeah. he says scripture never says that. Well, except for when it does say that. <laughs> this mm. is, again, this is my problem. This is why I would love to actually debate Michael. If, if, if you would, one of these days, I'd love to actually uh, have an actual debate face-to-face with you. Because he makes these kind of statements like, oh, the, the scriptures never say uh, that once the door closes, that it'll open again. Like, really? Well, because of Revelation twenty-one twenty-five, it tells us that at the end, right, the new heaven and the new earth, that, you know, here's Jesus on his throne in the new Jerusalem. There are this river of life flowing from the throne. All the righteous are surrounding the throne of Christ. There are these trees on each side of the river, which are, it says, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, the nations are a code for the unrighteous, those that are rebellious to God, those that were, uh, you know, the enemies of God. And uh, Revelation is all about this metaphor of going to war, going to battle with the nations. 
These are those that rejected Christ. And they're outside in, in, this, in this chapter of Revelation 21. They're outside the city, right? These are the ones that can never enter, right? They're the workers of iniquity. They're the witches and the whatever, you know, all, all the horrible people. Right. But then it says this. It says, those gates will never be shut, that they are open day, all day, and that there is no night. So, you know, typically at night you would close the, the gates of the city. Well, there is no night. It's always day, so those gates are always open. And then the call is, is anyone thirsty? Come freely and drink. So it is saying that at the end, when Christ has come and, he, and there's this big, this big battle and he separated the sheep from the goats and the sheep are in there with Jesus in the city and the goats are outside the city, the doors are open. They never close. And the call is, are you thirsty? Come and drink. And when you come and drink from the river of life flowing from the, the throne of Christ, guess what you notice around these trees that are all around there? That those leaves are specifically to heal the nations. So I would argue that actually scriptures do suggest that there is still a chance the door will remain open. Well, Keith has declared it. Therefore, it must be completely objectively <laughs> true. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like I would say, just go and read it. That's one of the things that the first time I read that passage, and I want to say shout out to Brad Jerzak. I was reading his book uh, of this of that title, right? Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Yep, yep. And when he pointed that part out in the book, I was in tears. I was like, oh my gosh, God, are you, I think you're better than I think you are. Like, yeah. like that's that's beautiful. That's amazing. That, that God's. And here's the thing too, I, I want to say about this too, this idea, oh, that God's mercy is up to a point. And then after that point, it's sorry, game over. You had your chance, right? Yeah. That's what he's saying. He's saying that this is the way it is, guys. And this life is your only chance. And and then after you die, it's too late. You've, you've made your choice. And um, so really, so when I read, there's so many verses, there's so many Psalms that will say that the that God's love endures forever. Or that says that, you know, God, that God's love is for, uh, that God's wrath is for a moment but his love endures forever. But McClyman wants us to believe the opposite, that, that somehow the scriptures actually say that the love of God is for a moment, but the wrath of God is for eternity. Right. And the scriptures don't ever say that. By the way, mm -hmm. there is not a single Old Testament verse that says anything about eternal conscious torment. Right. And we'll get into that as one of the clips coming up. But again, I, again, I just think that let's just be fair that there are plenty of verses that do suggest things that he says it doesn't suggest. Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket, let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to thesrf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's thesrf.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. 
April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. Hi, my name is Mary, and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a monthly donor to the New Evangelicals. I'm really thankful for the work they're doing, and I think that there is a really important job to continue. That's why I offer my support between the pandemic, Donald Trump, the dehumanization of the LGBTQ community. I just think we really need to reevaluate what we're doing as a church, as evangelicals as new evangelicals. So yeah, glad to be a part of this community and love the work. I I want to validate Jordan here. Ha ha. I can't help to see all this comes down to our interpretation of scripture along with our denominational influence. This goes for all layman, scholar, and theologian alike. Come on, am I taking crazy pills here? No, you're not, Jordan. I mean, I tell people often there's a reason why we don't have flat earth societies and academic circles, right? We're not really debating if the earth is flat or not because we can objectively go up to outer space and prove that it's not or yeah. you know, do our mathematics and calculations. But we all, but there are thousands of theology departments and they all argue about this stuff, about what this verse means versus what this verse means and what this means in context versus this. This is complicated and highly to a, to a, a degree subjective and also sometimes guesswork. I mean, any, I think, credible biblical scholar will tell you even the Bible itself, we don't know a lot about its origins. We do our best to to assume certain things, and we use our best, you know, um, reason and deductions with evidence. But it's yeah. a very complicated collection of texts that we just don't have a ton of knowledge about, and that's that's just what we're dealing with, whether whether we like it or not. So, I think that is a great point. All right, shall we keep moving on, Keith? All right, you got it. You raise theological and philosophical critiques of universalism. Now, we're not going to do this justice, obviously. We could. There's so many more arguments here, but you kind of put them in three categories. Let's kind of take them one by one, and maybe you could explain to us and why you think this is problematic and concerning for you. you the first one you call the problem of God. Explain. Yeah. A common view of universalists is that, um, that when God created the world, that God had to, in effect, diminish himself to bring himself down to our level so that God was sort of relatable. And they really have this shifted view of God. And I found this in um, some called panentheism. Kevin Van Hooser, well-known evangelical theologian, calls it, uh, well, he's a fancy name, calls it canonic relational ontotheology, which is quite a... <laughs> okay. But I, here's my analogy for this. It'd be like um, if a school teacher, let's say, in some... Some school where there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misbehavior and violence. Or it's a school. Let's imagine the school teacher could not expel any student from her classroom. Right. So students in the back are I don't know they're smoking marijuana in the corner. They're lighting fires in the wastebasket, and and she can give them a five minute timeout. You know, on the side of the room, but she can't actually say out of my room. There is a view of God among these relational theologians that God God actually cannot exclude any of his creatures. He's like obligated maintain relationship with them. So that's mm-hmm. a really, I think a, it's a non-biblical view of God. Also mm-hmm. the idea that creation is God lowering or limiting himself. Martin Luther said that to create is to command. He saw that creation was an expression of divine omnipotence and power, the power of God, also the wisdom of God, and then the goodness of God. He made all things very good. So I think we have at the very outset with some of these relational canonic theologians, we have a distorted image of, of the nature of God. Mm-hmm. Okay, there we go. So here we go. Here we go. I'm actually really glad that he ended on that 
we ended the clip on that statement that we have a distorted image of the nature of God. And I would say, yes, I've said this many times. I think that this is a, a even deeper issue when it comes to these three views, right? I think whichever of these three views of hell you take, you are saying something about the nature and character of God. If you embrace eternal conscious torment, you are saying that you believe that God by nature is a torturer of those of his enemies. Or you're saying it by annihilationism, you're saying that you believe God ultimately is a destroyer. Or, again, I'm biased, but I would say universal reconciliation, what you're saying about the character and nature of God is that God is a loving father who heals and restores all of his children. So I just have to get that out of the way. But let me back up to some things, the analogy he was giving about the school teacher, right? That God is sort of obligated to remain in relationship with these people. And I guess if you use a school teacher analogy, that makes a little sense. Let's try another analogy. Do you have children? I do. Are you obligated? Are you obligated to have a relationship with all of those children? I mean, don't you wish you could just like kick some of them out of the family and tell them never come back because they annoy you? Like, no. Hopefully, as a good father, as a good parent, uh, you would say, I'm not obligated to stay in relationship with my children. I love them. They're my children. And so, again, it's really odd to me to take this sort of posture when it comes to this conversation as if God should have the right to just decide that some of these children, you know, I don't want to love you. I don't want to. I don't want to stick around with you. I don't want to continue to be in relationship with you. God isn't any more obligated to do that than I am with my children because God is love, right? Mm. And because God is love, he's not obligated. It's who he is. It's his character, is his nature. So again, it's weird to me that he says all that and then says, oh, yes, we have a distorted image of God. I would say, yeah, yeah. I think you might want to think about that because I think it does distort the character and the nature of God. If what you're saying is that God is somehow diminished, he used that phrase too about the creation that, oh, you know, it's this bad thing that God did quote unquote diminished. That's his word. God right. diminished himself to create. And so I would ask, do you have a problem with this idea of God diminishing or lowering or humbling himself? Have you read Philippians chapter two? Do you not see that this is actually one of the beautiful things about Christ that even though he was found in very nature, God, he let go of that. He humbled himself. He became a, took on the form of a human being. He became a servant to all of us. And then it says, because he did that, right? The father exalted him to this highest place. And, and that whole analogy is given as an example that we are supposed to follow the same example. This is why we should also have the mind of Christ to humble ourselves, to lower us, lower ourselves. Like it's again, part of the nature and the character of God, according to New Testament theology according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, yeah. it's, it's not the diminishing of God. No, it's, it's, it's an exaltation of the character of God. Oh my gosh, God is so amazing. God is so powerful. God is so great that God is, is able to, is capable of humbling himself, of lowering himself. That is part of the greatness and the glory of God. I honestly have no notes, Keith. I think you nailed it. So <laughs> okay. usually I would start opining here, but I have nothing to add. No notes. Okay, well, let's go to the next clip. All right, you got it. Jewish Kabbalah taught that there's a left mm-hmm. and a right side of God, and they're in conflict with one another, and God has to reconcile with himself. And as God reconciles with himself, all creatures become reconciled. And so that's a non-biblical idea that like that evil originates within God, 
And that's an idea that some modern theologians embrace. There's distance, there's a yeah. fall with God, and then God has to, and like Lucifer and Christ are like the two sons of God, and they have to be united together with one another. This is, this is esoteric, Gnostic type of thinking. So there's a problem. There's a problem yeah. with Yeah, what are we talking about here, Keith? I'm lost on this one. This, this is also really one of the things that really annoys me probably more than anything else that he says in this conversation. Wow. And, and it Keith really bothers triggered. me that it's in, Oh, it really bothers me. <laughs> and like, when you asked me about doing this, I, when I, I think this is the part of the video where I was like, Oh, hell yes. I want to talk about this. So what he's doing here, and it really bothers me because what he, what he's doing, I feel like it's just guilty by association. It is such a stretch to make the claim I, that universalism crept into you know, even Christianity, you know, historic Christianity, it crept in by the Gnostics or Kabbalah, right? Jewish mysticism. And again, these, especially Gnosticism, it's like this boogeyman. It's another boogeyman, right? Like, yeah. oh, if we can say it's Gnosticism, it's automatically disregarded, automatically rejected because, oh, it's Gnosticism. So I just want to say 100% categorically, this is absolute nonsense. No one who is a universalist, all those, you know, at the beginning of this, we talked about, right? We talked about Origen, Clement of Alexandria, um, all the Gregories, like Athanasius. None of those guys believe this because of influence of Gnosticism. And you know how I know that? Gnosticism isn't universalist. Gnosticism is not a universalist belief. So the, the universalism of Gnosticism can't creep into something if it doesn't exist in the first place. And neither is Kabbalah. So it, it's, it's sort of a guilt by association Hey, let's pull in these things that everybody, we all agree these things are, are weird and wonky and strange. Let's just act as if this is where it came from. But there is no evidence. There's no ties. There's no proof of this. I have a, I have a quote from, as I, again, I was doing research for this, I came across a quote from David Bentley Hart, who he mentions in this as well as being someone who uh, disagrees with him. But on this point, David Bentley Hart said, he said, McClyman's guiding narrative is that the great universalist figures of, of the patristic period, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Athanasius, etc., were unwittingly influenced by ancient Gnostics. Utter nonsense, and not even plausible nonsense. To begin with, this is again, I'm quoting David Bentley Hart, there is not the inconsiderable fact that neither the so-called Gnostics of old nor the Kabbalists were universalists. McClyman goes to absurd links to prove otherwise in order to give the impression that they are saying something that they are not. So um, I'll throw down the gauntlet on that one, buddy. <laughs> Boom. All right. Yeah, <laughs> that's helpful. not true. Sheesh. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I think that was the main thing I wanted to say about that. Because, again, it's like, why, why do you feel the need to pull that in? I don't know why you're basically making up something. And to me, okay, let's just one more thing on that. Go ahead, Keith. So not only did universalism not creep into Christianity through Gnosticism or the Kabbalah, you know, what did creep in to early Judaism around the first century was eternal conscious torment. Hmm. And again, I talk about this in the book. I demonstrate this. It did creep into Judaism. There was there were some sects of Judaism in the first century that had begun to embrace this idea within Judaism of sort of like hell as a place of eternal torment. Now, what's interesting is we know, we can trace it, that that, that view that some of these rabbis uh, embraced of eternal torment they didn't get this from the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't basing this on Isaiah or Jeremiah or anything like that. So no, nothing in the law, nothing in the Torah, nothing in the prophets, minor or major. It does. That's not the source for eternal conscious torment creeping in. It's it's paganism. 
and specifically like Egyptian mythology. So that's what I find so weird is that like the view that he holds did creep in from pagan sources. Yeah. But, but to him, oh no, let's not, he doesn't want to talk about that, but he wants to invent some kind of a thing that Gnosticism and, and the Kabbalah taught universalism. And that's how it got into Christianity. That is not the case. No proof of that. That is very helpful. It's great. All right. We'll keep on moving. Hey, we're getting through these clips. This is great. We're doing let's all right. Keep, let's, let's keep moving. It. Now, the second one, which to me was one of the most interesting points in the book, is what you call the problem of grace. Explain that one, if you will. Well, the there the problem is that, gr- that grace is God's, you know, we could define it just roughly, uh, as I think many preachers would, God's unmerited favor. God is not obligated to give grace. Mm-hmm. And the paradox of, of universalism is by extending grace to everyone, grace is in effect abolished because grace becomes mandatory. It becomes, God's job is to ensure that everyone is saved. So, so far is the logic that God is forced to give everyone grace under the universal reconciliation paradigm, and therefore it's not really grace because it's expected, it's not a special thing? Yeah, yeah, this is a head scratcher for me, honestly. This is another part of the video where I was just like, what is he talking about? So this idea that God, if God extends grace to everyone, somehow grace is diminished. Again, like this idea of like, so if I love all of my children, that love is invalid because I'm forced to love all my children. Like, I I just don't get this. Although it does make sense how this view of maybe the afterlife and grace can lead to like hierarchies in society, right? Where some people are more loved by God because of their special grace compared to what someone else doesn't have because they're not in they're on, you know, does that make sense? So like, I mean, mean, it's just interesting because like I could see all kinds of implications for this belief that, well, how dare the universalist will say for sake of argument, um, believe that like God's grace extends to everyone because that diminishes the grace of God. I would think that would just show how at the center of creation is a divine being that loves their creation that much that their grace extends freely to all, period. Yes. But I guess for yes. for Mike, it's the opposite. Yeah, I really don't get this point he's trying to make. Or if if, if I oh. maybe I do get it, I just don't agree with it. Uh, it doesn't yeah, yeah. make any sense to me. Uh, because right. it's it seems that he's creating a category. Well, by phrasing it the way he's phrasing it, I think this is part of the problem. To say that God is obligated, as if, okay, who's holding a gun to God's head and saying, God, I know you really don't want to. I know you really don't like this, but you know what? It's your job. That's that's his words. It's your job to show grace and mercy and love to everyone. Uh, I don't know. When I read the scriptures, both Old and New Testament scriptures, I see over and over again that God God is love, that God's mercy endures forever, that God loves to show and extend mercy and grace. So it's not like God is being forced to do something against the will of God. This is the will of God. It's the will of God that none should perish. Yeah, I think framing it this way is part of the problem. So Al says that McClemens' concern, the universalist claim, makes God into a determined non-free being. So I guess it's taking away the agency of God. Um, That is a helpful... Uh, clarification there, Al, for sure. But I mean, that's easily, in my opinion, worked around with maybe that's just the nature of God. Maybe that's just what God wants to do is God wants to offer that free gift to everyone. 
No, that's exactly right. To me, again, it, it does go to the character of God. And if, the, if you have a being whose character, whose being is love, is mercy, um, then that then it's not to say, okay, God has no freedom or God is not a free agent because God is merciful. No, right. God is being true to God being in nature. Yeah. All right. Let's, yeah. let's keep this clip so, going. Anyway, that's, I think that's all I have. So to. if that's your view, then grace is actually not, it's not gracious. It's, it's, it's God's, you know, it's God's responsibility. It reminds me, Heinrich Heine, he was a German writer and, and someone said something to him about God on his deathbed. His supposed last words were, God will forgive me. That's his job, you know? Mm. And, and that's kind of the idea that in the contemporary culture, it's like it's God's responsibility to save everyone. So the, the grace is lost. The grace is really something that God freely gives in, 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 and, um, so, so anyway, it's, it's, it is an irony that, that, that grace would be undermined by the people who think that they're, that they're emphasizing it. Yeah, that's, fa- that's fascinating. Yeah, I really, I really don't understand this yeah. point. Like, I'm trying to fully get it, but, um, okay, I, I, let's keep this clip going. I want to hear what else you have to say. The root of what makes Christianity distinct from other faiths is that it's grace and it's not earned that gets undermined in a movement that tries to give grace to everybody, really gives grace in a sense in the way it's biblically understood to nobody. You could make that case. So you have right. the problem of problem of God, problem of grace. I just don't I don't understand that. That if God gives grace to everybody, that it's not like, okay, you just he just said that it's unmerited favor, right? So then there's nothing anyone does to merit it. Everyone receives it freely. Again, I don't see how that unmerited favor is diminished in any way if God gives it to everyone. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like when Oprah Winfrey gave everyone a, a yes. car. It's like that's. <laughs> um, I mean, you if she gave, yeah, if she gave one person a car, it's like, oh wow, that's really that's really kind. She gave everyone a car, which made the gift that much more extravagant, right? Like, oh yeah. my God, you bought everyone a car in the audience. I just feel like, right. I mean, that that just makes Oprah that much more of, of a badass, right? As opposed to right. like giving one car away. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a bad analogy, but in my opinion, the idea that that God is working to reconcile all things and all people at the end of time, that, wow, what, what an extravagant God to do that. Yes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I would say. That makes sense. All right, let's go to the next clip. Friends, you're telling me over here really quick. You're, I'm getting some that you're having some lag issues. Sorry about that. I, everything on my end is clear, and Keith is coming in clear, so maybe it's my upload speed. I'm not sure. But if that keeps going, just let me know. Uh, my apologies. Sometimes with YouTube, who knows? By the way, we are a nonprofit organization. If you want to support the work that we do, you can donate. We are a nonprofit, which means that all donations are tax deductible. It keeps this work completely paywall free and keeps guests like Keith coming on the podcast and the show to help you explore better paths in your faith. All super chats, all donations go right to the organization to make this work possible. So thanks for being here. And if you like this stream, please feel free to like and subscribe to the channel. It helps us out so much. I really appreciate it. I'm Shane Claiborne from Red Letter Christians, and I am proud to team up with the New Evangelicals and Project Amplify because Christianity is in crisis in America. There are a lot of folks who are trying to camouflage their bigotry or hatred or exclusion in the name of Christ. But at the end of the day, the word Christian means 
Christ-like. And so we're called to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus. Jesus said we will be known by our love. So let's reclaim Jesus. Let's take the good news of the gospel back. And I want you to join me uh, for this project, Project Amplify, because as my friend Reverend Barber says, the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. And some of the loudest voices representing Christianity haven't always been the most Christ-like or the most loving or faithful or beautiful. It's time to change that. Let's keep moving on here. I think we're at clip nine out of 10. So we're almost there. Let's do it. So we're going to look at just a couple of passages, and I wish we had time to go into way more depth on these that are cited biblically to support universalism. But you make a point that it's not just looking at these verses and interpreting them differently. Universalists tend to take a very different interpretive methodology or hermeneutic to the text and thus come up with a universalist interpretation. What tends to be that hermeneutic that is brought to the text you see universalists consistently utilizing? One is uh, is rejecting the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament mm. versus New Testament. I mean, and this isn't... All right, Keith, go ahead, your hands up. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is one of those moments in the video where I was like, oh, uh, What? So, yeah, this idea that, yeah, here's how Christian universalists reject eternal conscious torment. They Step one, they ignore the Old Testament. And I just said, what? Like, oh, you mean all of those Old Testament texts that affirm eternal conscious torment? I mean, wait a minute. No, there's not a single one. There is not one Old Testament text that supports the idea of eternal conscious torment. So to be a Christian universalist, no. It has nothing to do with rejecting the Old Testament. Again, like even when earlier when he was trying to make some kind of a case, what he was making a case for wasn't eternal conscious torment. It was for the idea that those those who are disobedient will perish. They will die by the sword. It's, right. it's about dying and death, not about staying alive artificially for eternity so that God can roast you in flames. So, I mean, again, show me where are all these, you know, texts in the Old Testament that are pro eternal conscious torment? Where are all these like, you know, Jewish rabbis throughout history, you know, antiquity that are like making some kind of a case? Again, before the first century, there were none. And again, the only the only reason there are some later is because of the, this influence from Egyptian uh, paganism. So, no, there is nothing to do with rejecting the Old Testament. I think that, again, that's kind of a, uh, a smokescreen. I'm curious to see if uh, Mike explains what he means here. Let's find out. Old theme in Protestant liberal theology, the angry God of the Old Testament versus the mm -hmm. loving God of the New Testament. I think most universalists have uh, much have difficulty in reconciling their, their universalist views, looking at the whole of scripture, right? Oh, so Mike is saying that because of the way God is portrayed in the Hebrew Bible regarding anger and wrath and that stuff, mm -hmm. that's over, that, that's, that is unreconcilable with the universalist claim. I think that that's what he's getting at here, which again, I, but we're not talking about like, like you know, the afterlife, right? Like, like to your point, no. what, what's the main word? Sheol, uh, which in the KJV, like, yeah, which gets in, in the KJV gets translated to hell in the Hebrew Bible, but any other version, it's the pit. It could be uh, just Sheol itself, whatever. 
very different meaning than eternal conscious torment. So I don't know, like, I don't know. I mean, for you, Keith, do you find that like the God God as portrayed in the Hebrew Bible is automatically at odds with universal reconciliation? No, I don't think so. I, I think he makes a point, I would say maybe a lot of people going through deconstruction have noticed like, wow, the God of the Old Testament seems to be a God who's much more jealous and angry and wrathful, whereas Jesus presents a, a father who is loving and kind and merciful. So I think, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I don't think, in other words, to be a Christian universalist, it's not like, well, then you've got to reject the Old Testament view. Like, right. again, to your point, yes, when we do see these verses, here's what we do see, right? When we look at, like, there are a lot of plenty of Old Testament texts that use the same kind of language that we see Jesus using later. That's, this is called apocalyptic hyperbole. I talk about all this in my book, but I give lots of examples of this kind of thing. This is, I think, honestly, where people get confused about when they say things like, oh, no one preaches more about eternal conscious torment than Jesus. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Because what they're saying is, what they're really saying, they don't realize it is, no one talks about apocalyptic hyperbole more than Jesus. Because Jesus, when he uses phrases like, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, um, or the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever, he is quoting Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Amos and these other people, uh, other prophets in the Old Testament, who use the exact same language. In fact, that those phrases I just read are verbatim quotes from those texts from the Old Testament that that talk about where you know they're they're giving they're giving a warning to the either the children of Israel or the or the nation of Edom or Egypt, and they're saying, you know, this destruction is coming upon you uh, if you do not repent and turn away from what you're doing. And then it will use, then the, the prophets will use this kind of language, because if you don't, the stars will fall from the sky, and the, you know, the moon won't give its light, um, there'll be destruction that has never been since the beginning of the, the world to this point or ever again. You know, the worm will not die, the fire is not quenched, eternal smoke and torment. So when it's using that language, that apocalyptic hyperbole, it's describing real armies that actually come and go go to war against those different, you know, Edom or Egypt or Jerusalem. And and so it's it's a metaphor, right? And so even though you have that exact same kind of language, like you can find that kind of language in the Old Testament where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and all that stuff. But when you read it in the context, it's like, oh, he's talking about literal death. Again, it's literal death, not 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 what happens to anybody after they die. Yeah. And so it's the same thing Jesus is talking about. And I think, again, this is one of the big misunderstandings. When Jesus is using that language, he's referring to an event that would that was about to come in about 40 years. And he was warning them about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, the end of the age, not the end of the world. And so he's yeah. using that same apocalyptic language to refer to AD 70. And, and again, almost every verse, I would say, the eternal conscious torment believers point to to say, aha, here it is, Jesus or Paul talking about eternal conscious torment, no, that's that's uh, actually a warning using apocalyptic hyperbole, the same kind of ideas and languages to refer to a real destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, and the end of the sacrifice, all that coming at the end of the age. Josh asked this question, does the OT even mention OT uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible even mention the afterlife. My understanding is that Sheol is the pl- is the place of the dead. I know that that there is the summoning. Is it uh, who gets summoned? Uh, is it in First Samuel? Um, oh, yeah, I yeah, think Samuel, ahead. right? Yeah, I think that is right. Yeah, when Saul goes and, and like uh, yeah awakens him. Yeah, so and, and, um, and he he gets mad for being awakened pretty much. So I mean, I, I'm not familiar with like the afterlife in the sense of how we think about it, where when you die, you know, you might go to heaven or hell. 
I'm not sure, I mean, you would know more than I would if that's talked about explicitly in the Hebrew Bible, but I think that at least the place of the dead and there being something beyond the grave is talked about in its own very much Jewish way. Right. And I think you're right. So the what you'll see is language. You know, David talks a lot about this in the Psalms. We have some hints, you know, in places. But again, it's pretty vague. But again, Sheol is just the grave. And again, everyone goes to the grave because everyone yeah. dies. So it's simply like you were alive and then you're not. <laughs> and because you're dead, you're in Sheol. That's the grave. And, you know, David gives us a little glimmers of hope that even though my my soul tastes death, yet my eyes with my eyes, I will see God. Right. Great Crystal Lewis song. We all, we all know that, that, that song. So there is the hope, but it's never explicitly explained, right? Well, well when will that happen, right? Uh, I think a lot of Jewish rabbis, that's for the idea of like this, this resurrection, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. There would be sort of a reward given and that kind of a thing. But it's not explicitly spelled out. I don't think you can turn to an Old Testament passage. I think these are ideas that were developed by, um, you know, Jewish rabbis and, and theologians about, oh, here's what we think might happen. Yeah. But the Jewish scriptures are not very explicit exactly about. And, and again, even though they might hint about something like that, you know, this um, after the after Sheol, I would continue to be alive in some sense spiritually. Um, there is no sense of an afterlife of, of eternal torment. Hmm. All right. Let's keep, let's keep going with, with this clip. So a lot would want to limit themselves just to the, the New Testament. And then there is a tendency uh, to. Um, to take spiritual reading sometimes, spiritual interpretations. For instance, some of the, the theologians that inclined toward universalism in the 20th century, um, John A.T. Robinson, he, he had this view, this existentialist view, that when Jesus talks about the fire of hell in Gehenna, or would be the, would be the Greek word, that he's pointing toward the universal human dilemma of decision that we make moment by moment in all of our lives. It's not about a specific outcome that pertains to, you know, after you die. It's like all of us are every moment standing. I'm thinking of that old REM song, you know, choosing my religion. This or like every single moment choosing my religion. So it's, it's like, well, what does that have to do with the teaching of Jesus? That's like reading a kind of 20th century philosophical movement. Back in the text, but that's another move existentializing. Mm. Karl Rahner called it threat discourse. Yeah. So just to summarize, he's he's saying that that there are people nowadays in the 20th century who are reading universalism back into the text and kind of imposing maybe a foreign idea to the teachings of Jesus. By, I mean, Rob Bell kind of hints at this, right? Like like uh, like hell on earth kind of vibe, right? Like maybe hell yeah. is about the realities that, that we create here and now, and not just about the afterlife, so to speak. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I have to I have to correct him. Um, the REM song is not changing my religion. It's losing my religion. So I just got to say that. Um, <laughs> so uh, now that's out of the way. Yeah, so again, I think this is just as a case of Mike is explaining this way of thinking to us the way he understands it. Like, Oh, this is what you're doing. You're just doing this existential thing. Again, like it's some arbitrary thing. When what I'm saying is, no, this is apocalyptic hyperbole. This is a long running Jewish tradition throughout the Jewish scriptures where again, yes, he's saying, you know, we're sort of spiritualizing the text, but that is what this is, right? It, it is, uh, we are encouraged to read it spiritually. Paul read this, the scriptures from a spiritual standpoint, right? And so, um, I would say the problem is reading it literally. And if you read it literally, then of course, yes, you are going to land on this place of, well, then, you know, there has to be these 
worms that are eternal that never die that are constantly, you know, in, in this, this uh, in Gehenna, which again is Gehenna is another word quite often translated as hell in our English translations. Right. But again, Gehenna was a literal place. It was the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem where they burned their trash. And again, what I find really fascinating about this, again, it's a metaphor. Anytime a Jewish prophet or Jesus is using Gehenna as a metaphor for something, again, Jesus is using it in the context of AD 70, because again, sadly, horrifically, that is what happened. The, the people that were in the city of Jerusalem when the Roman army surrounded and invaded and they, they killed, slaughtered millions of people, they threw their bodies into Gehenna and they burned the bodies. That's what they did. So it's, it's talking about like, no, this is really going to happen, right? It's, it's used as a metaphor in a sense, but it's not talking about some, something that happens after we die. I was going to say in Jeremiah, there's an interesting text. Um, and again, the Old Testament, Jeremiah 19.5, God is talking about what was happening at the time was Jewish people were worshiping Baal and worshiping uh, idols. And as part of that worship, what they would do was in the Valley of Gehenna, they had their idols and they were burning their like firstborn children as an offering to these false gods, to these idols. And God's response to that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19.5 is this. He says that the idea of burning his children or burning, burning your children in the valley of Gehenna was something that was so barbaric, it, he says, it never entered my mind. Hmm. And to me, that's significant because that would have been a perfect opportunity for, for Jehovah God in the Old Testament to say, look, guys, I see you burning your children in the valley of Gehenna. I'm going to do that with some of you later on right, for eternity. But he doesn't say that. His response to this idea of burning children in, the, in Gehenna for, you know, in, as some act of worship, he's like, that never entered my mind. Hmm. Like, what you came up with this idea, not me. Right. This idea of burning, burning people in Gehenna is not God's idea. It's our idea. Hmm. That's a really good point. I never thought about that. So I appreciate you highlighting it. All right, let's get to the grand finale, our final clip here. Here we go. Um, the, the, other, the other move in terms of interpretation or hermeneutics is to say that there are two different Pauls. There's a universalist Paul and then there's a particularist Paul. And if you, to, to believe that you'd actually have to say that like Paul really was of two minds, like the great apostle to the Gentiles is author of so much of the new Testament. He didn't even, wasn't even sure himself as to whether everyone would be saved or wouldn't be saved. And it, it just, it strains you know, mm. you know, credulity to the breaking point. Yeah, that the apostle would not have this resolved. And then, if you if you look at the you know, the passages, I mean, Romans five eighteen. Right yeah, in front let's look of at me. these. Go ahead. So, so oh, go ahead. Yeah. Then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Okay, so this is the verse that you quoted earlier. Let's yes. see what his response is yeah. to it. Full stop. Now, this is sometimes quoted out of context. To, to favor universalism, but the very next verse doesn't speak of all, it speaks of the many. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now that should immediately put a question in your mind. Why mm. is Paul's seem speak, you know, kind of seems to be loose in the way he's using vocabulary. Just someone like say, well, did, did, uh, did everyone come to the party on Saturday night? Yeah, they were all there. Well, that's, that's a loose way of speaking. There may have been one person who was expected to the party who didn't come. And so there seems to be kind of a looseness. And then even more profoundly. Wait, but I got to just say here, verse 19, for as one as one, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, not all. 
So are we all sinners or not? If it, I mean, I, I, you have to apply. It's the same phrase, right? So for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Well, I mean, so are we all sinners or not? I feel like, like this is a, you can't have your cake and eat it too scenario where it's like, well, everyone definitely is totally depraved and sinful for all time, objectively speaking, because of Adam. But we can't all be saved because that's just not how God works. I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Keith? Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Tim. This is exactly right. It's oh, basically, to me, it's like, <laughs> it's basically like we don't want, Paul to be saying what Paul is very obviously saying. He says, you know, again, let's just read it. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Just as the result, Paul says, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. That's verse 18. And then the verse right after that, verses 19 and 22 verses after that, he continues the thought. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, to your point, is Mike trying to tell me that, that, that what Paul is saying is that not everybody is under the condemnation of sin. Because Paul says right there, it's many. I mean, we could use the scripture then to follow his logic to say, okay, guess what, everybody? Not everybody is a sinner. Right. Some of you are not. Some of you are not. Because Paul says only many, not all. Right. Of course, they would reject that and say, no, all. Okay, so you understand that when Paul says this, he he knows that you know that we agree that it's, it's this universal thing, right? And that he's comparing the Adam experience to the Jesus experience, to the Christ experience, Yeah. right? So as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That would be everybody. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, the same, the same group of people. And then it says, it ends with, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more or much more. Mm. So again, now, if you take those sets, like if you want to say, oh, no, he only meant many, not all. Okay, under Adam, but under Christ, it means even more. It's mm. it's it's exponentially greater under Christ. It's, it's So, yeah, okay, if you want to say it's not the same many, okay, maybe it's not the same many under Adam as it is under Christ. But if you keep reading, Paul says the group of people that are made righteous are greater. It's because the grace is even even more. It mm. expounds even more. Yeah. So in other words, there's more than enough to cover whatever is in the Adam group. It's even more than that is available in, in the Christ, under the Christ group. Yeah, I don't understand this. I have I okay, I'm gonna push you here on something though. Do I have permission to do that, Keith? Sure. All right, so, so this is Second Thessalonians. Um, yeah. Okay, and uh, verses six here through ten. I believe Paul, we believe that 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 Paul wrote Second uh, Second Thessalonians, and it's just like a Paul's different version. Do. What's up? Some some do, some don't. All right, well, it's, it's, it's debated. That's a debated, that's a disputed one. Yeah, fair, but, but it does say right. It says this: God is just; He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. Yes. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because your testimony to you. 
doesn't this kind of, if Paul did write this, this seems to be a different version of what Paul yes. talked about in Romans, where now we're talking about everlasting destruction. So, you know, I, and again, yeah. uh, the audience knows this, you know this. I tend to oscillate between these two views of either annihilationism or universal reconciliation, but I tend to lean more towards the annihilation or conditionalism viewpoint. And verses like this seem to be what I think about. So for the mind of someone like yourself, who's a universal reconciliationist, or maybe I would say more convinced of that position, biblically speaking, how do you make sense of verses like this? It's a great one. Actually, he, I think he does bring it up in, the, in this video. So yeah, I, I'm gonna, let's talk about that. I would say you're right. First of all, you're right to notice that Paul here sounds different than Paul sounds in Romans, like what we just read, right? Yeah. And that is, by the way, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why a lot of scholars do doubt that Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, because all of a sudden his language shifts. Like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? This seems very different. I want to also say, though, that there's, a, I would, again, there's a translation situation, I think, in this one where, again, the version you read, I'm not sure, was that NIV or NAS? Or I believe like it was NIV. Yeah, it was NIV. Okay. So I'm going to go, this is more of a, like a, just a straight Greek translation. Let me find this for Second Thessalonians. You who suffer the affliction with repose in our company at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, along with the angels under his power, in flaming fire, yep. exacting justice upon those who do not know God and do not heed the good tidings of our Lord Jesus, who will, now here's the key part that's different from what you read, okay. who will pay the just reparation of ruin in the age, not everlasting. Oh. Again, it's, this, it's the phrase of in the age. And again, this is our clue that it's hmm. talking about the end of the age. Again, this is also a verse about AD 70. So this would also be an, a use of this kind of apocalyptic hyperbole. And again, it, this idea, like I understand what you're saying. Like when you read a verse, it talks about this, this fire, you know, that's going to come. But again, understand that from the Christian universalist perspective, fire is good. Fire is refining. Fire, fire is restoring. Fire is like the, the fuller soap that, that cleanses. So yes, it sounds scary and like, oh, that's that's a bad thing. Yeah. But if even if it does have a spiritual context, the fire of God is restorative. The fire of God is like again, this this refiner's fire that reveals the gold and silver and precious stones. Mm. Um and again, as Paul says, even if it burns everything up and there and there isn't any of that gold, silver, and precious stones, Paul says, yet they will be saved. Um so I, I understand that verse sounds really scary. But I think part, partly it's um, a translation where some of those phrases are are turned a little bit in the favor of eternal conscious torment, right? It's sure. eternal fire, but it's not. It's the age. It's not talking about, you know, the eternity of the fire or the torture. It's talking about the end of the age. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to respond to this is simply to offer people another perspective, right? You know that we like bringing people through the different rooms of the Christian tradition. And too many of us were taught that if they don't, view hell as eternal conscious torment. They're not real Christians. They don't take the Bible seriously. They're ignorant, maybe even heretical. And that's just not true. Christians for a long time have debated what the afterlife, afterlife might or might not be like. They've all used the Bible to justify those positions, plus other ingredients as well. So I appreciate you, Keith, taking time to represent the position of universal reconciliation and how not only has it been held for throughout church history, but many legitimate, brilliant people, such as David Bentley Hart and Bradley Jersak yeah. and others, 
hold to that view now and for good reason because the Bible, like we say often, is not always as clear around some of these topics as we wish that it was. And that's just the Bible that we have, as Pete Enns says. So I appreciate you making yeah. time, Keith. If people want to listen to more of your, your teachings or read more of your content or books, where can folks find you? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Tim. This has been awesome. And I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Yeah, you can find me. I blog at keithjoss.com. That's my Pathios blog. I co-host or host three different podcasts, Heretic Happy Hour, Apostates Anonymous, and my solo podcast, Second Cup with Keith. All of my books, including the one we talked about today, Jesus Undefeated, they're on Amazon. You can check those out there. Um, and can I can I end with a quote? There's a, there's a quote that I'd like to read. Oh, you mentioned David Bentley Hart, and he has just a beautiful quote that I think is really relevant uh, as we're wrapping up this topic. Great. He says, if it is from Christ that we are to learn how God relates himself to sin, suffering, evil, and death, it would seem that sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. Hmm. What a note. I love it. Keith, thank you for your time. Thanks for being here. We'll do this again soon. Keep in touch. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. You got it. All right, friends, there you go. A nice 90-minute case for universal reconciliation. As, as is most things in the Christian tradition, it's never as black and white as you think. But I really appreciate Keith coming on and giving a response to Mike McClimmon. And again, Sean, if you're watching this, I know we've been, we've been responding to a lot of your videos lately. It is nothing personal. You just had some really interesting guests that I think are worth responding to. So friends, thank you so much for being here. If you like this content, make sure you subscribe to our channel. We do a lot of lives. We do a lot of podcasting. We do a lot of in-depth videos on all different kinds of topics relating to the Christian faith. If you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization. We hold space for thousands of people who have been marginalized by the evangelical church. We advocate for accountability inside the evangelical church, and we help people like you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of fundamentalism. All of our content, our community stuff, it's all paywall-free. There's no cost to get into our Zoom groups or our private Facebook community because of the generosity of people like you. All donations made in the U.S. are tax-deductible. Any super chats go right to the organization as well. Thank you so much for your support. You make this work possible. I will talk to you all later on. Have a great day. See ya.